Chapter Twenty Nine of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gesine. Capital, a critical analysis of capital production, Volume One, by Karl Marx. Translated from the third German edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part Eight, the so-called primitive accumulation. Chapter Twenty-Nine, Genesis of the Capitalist Farmer. Now that we have considered the forcible creation of a class of outlawed proletarians, the bloody discipline that turned them into wage-laborers, the disgraceful action of the state which employed the police to accelerate the accumulation of capital by increasing the degree of exploitation of labor, the question remains, whence came the capitalists originally? For the expropriation of the agricultural population creates, directly, none but the greatest landed proprietors. As far, however, as concerns the genesis of the farmer, we can, so to say, put our hand on it, because it is a slow process, evolving through many centuries. The serfs, as well as the free small proprietors, held land under very different tenures, and were therefore emancipated under very different economic conditions. In England, the first form of the farmer is the bailiff, himself a serf. His position is similar to that of the old Roman villicus, only in the more limited sphere of action. During the second half of the fourteenth century, he is replaced by a farmer, whom the landlord provided with seed, cattle, and implements. His condition is not very different from that of the peasant. Only he exploits more wage labor. Soon he becomes a metayer, a half-farmer. He advances one part of the agricultural stock, the landlord the other. The two divide the total product in proportions determined by contract. This form quickly disappears in England to give the place to the farmer proper, who makes his own capital breed by employing wage labourers, and pays a part of the surplus product, in money or in kind, to the landlord as rent. So long, during the fifteenth century, as the independent peasant and the farm labourer working for himself, as well as for wages, enriched themselves by their own labour, the circumstances of the farmer and his field of production were equally mediocre. The agricultural revolution, which commenced in the last third of the fifteenth century, and continued during almost the whole of the sixteenth, excepting, however, its last decade, enriched him just as speedily as it impoverished the mass of the agricultural people. Footnote Harrison, in his Description of England, says, Although peradventure four pounds of old rent be improved to forty toward the end of his term, if he have not six or seven years rent lying by him, 
fifty or a hundred pounds, yet will the farmer think his gains very small. End of footnote. The usurpation of the common lands allowed him to augment greatly his stock of cattle, almost without cost, whilst they yielded him a richer supply of manure for the tillage of the soil. To this was added in the sixteenth century a very important element. At that time the contracts for farms ran for a long time, often for ninety-nine years. The progressive fall in the value of the precious metals, and therefore of money, brought the farmers golden fruit. Apart from all the other circumstances discussed above, it lowered wages. A portion of the latter was now added to the profits of the farm. The continuous rise in the price of corn, wool, meat, in a word of all agricultural produce, swelled the money capital of the farm without any actions on his part, whilst the rent he paid, being calculated on the old value of money, diminished in reality. Footnote. On the influence of the depreciation of money in the sixteenth century, on the different classes of society, see a compendium of brief examination of certain ordinary complaints of diverse of our countrymen in these our days, by W. S. Gentleman, London, 1581. The dialogue form of this work led people for a long time to ascribe it to Shakespeare, and even in 1751 it was published under his name. Its author is William Stafford. In one place the knight reasons as follows. Knight, you, my neighbour, the husbandman, you, Maester Mercer, and you, Goodman Cooper, with other artificers, may save yourselves meetly well. For as much as all things are dearer than they were, so much do you arise in the price of your wares and occupations that ye sell again. But we have nothing to sell whereby we might advance ye price thereof, to countervail those things that we must buy again. In another place the knight asks the doctor, I pray you, what by those sorts that ye mean? And first of those that ye think should have no loss thereby? Doctor, I mean all those that live by buying and selling, for as they buy dear, they sell thereafter. Knight, what is the next sort that ye say would win by it? Doctor, Marry all such as have takings of fermies in their own manurance, cultivation, at the old rent, for where they pay after the old rate they sell after the new, that is, they pay for their land good cheap, and sell all things growing thereof dear. Knight, what sort is that which, he said, should have greater loss hereby than these men had profit? Doctor, it is all noblemen, gentlemen, and all other that live either by a stinted rent or stipend, or do not manure, cultivate, the ground, or do occupy no buying and selling. End of footnote. Thus they grew rich at the expense both of their labourers and their landlords. No wonder, therefore, that England, at the end of the sixteenth century, had a class of capitalist farmers, rich, considering the circumstances of the time.
Footnote. In France, the régisseur, steward, collector of dues for the feudal lords during the earlier part of the Middle Ages, soon became an homme d'affaires, who by extortion, cheating, etc., swindled himself into a capitalist. These régisseurs themselves were sometimes noblemen. For example, this is the account given by M. Jacques de Tourès, knight, and lord of a manor near Besançon, to the lord who administers the accounts at Dijon for his highness the duke and count of Burgundy, of the rents appurtenant to the above-mentioned manor from the twenty-fifth day of December, 1359, to the twenty-eighth day of December, 1360. Alexis Montaigne, Traité de Matériaux Manuscrits, etc., pages 234-235. Already it is evident here how in all spheres of social life the lion's share falls to the middleman. In the economic domain, for example, financiers, stock exchange, speculators, merchants, shopkeepers skim the cream. In civil matters, the lawyer fleeces his clients. In politics, the representative is of more importance than the voters, the minister than the sovereign. In religion, God is pushed into the background by the mediator, and the latter again is shoved back by the priests, the inevitable middleman between the good shepherd and his sheep. In France, as in England, the great feudal territories were divided into innumerable small homesteads, but under conditions incomparably more favourable for the people. During the fourteenth century arose the farms or terriers. Their number grew constantly, far beyond one hundred thousand. They paid rents varying from one-twelfth to one-fifth of the product in money or in kind. These farms were fiefs, sub-fiefs, etc., according the value and extent of the domains, many of them only containing a few acres. But these farmers had rights of jurisdiction in some degree over the dwellers on the soil. There were four grades. The oppression of the agricultural population under all these petty tyrants will be understood. Montaigne says that there were once in France 160,000 judges, where today 4,000 tribunals, including justices of the peace, suffice. End of footnote. End of chapter 29